Thank you, thank you. Um, well, first of all, thank you everybody for joining me this, this afternoon and taking the trek to the furthest back corner of the, the event to talk about diversity. But I think it's reflective of the difficulty of the conversation and the journey in general. I actually look, because I know there's like a diversity path, so just in case anyone wants to know, all the diversity sessions will be in this room in Ironwood 7. So just mark your calendars and your maps from a location. Uh, like Katrina said, my name is Roy Dockery. I'm the Vice President of Customer Care for Swiss Log Healthcare. So one thing, I have nothing to sell you. I am not a vendor nor a sponsor. Um, I'm a service executive. I've spoke at these TSIA events and been a member of TSIA for probably the last seven years, probably. So been around for a while and I've talked on a lot of different topics around recruitment, um, escalate, escalation, prioritization, entitlement, management. And for the last several years at TSIA and at other events, I've spoken on diversity and recruitment. Uh, so I was you know, contacted by TSA and TSIA and Vail to have some conversations. Um, and they asked me to come up with a topic of discussion. And one thing that I've been seeing is just that we need to be a little bit more refined and definitive in what we mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that as an organization, as we want to approach it, that we have, a, we have a, like a unified understanding of what that is. So when I talk about deconstructing homogeneity, what I'm referring to is why do you have a lack of diversity, right? So a lot of times we jump into diversity and we wanna diversify our organizations, we wanna diversify our teams, we wanna diversify our companies, but why are you not diverse? So why are you not deconstructing the reason that your organization has been missing diverse talent or people instead of potentially trying to interject or inject diversity into a culture that could be toxic. So when I'm talking about deconstructing homogeneity, um, I'll go through a few things. First, we're gonna define diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I'm, a, I'm a podcast host, I'm a pastor, I'm used to speaking to people in person and virtual, but I also like to define things <laughs> when we're talking about it, just so at least in the context of this conversation, we know that we're on the same page and we're using the same language. So we'll start with a few definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll transition into talking about the, the, the value in the, in the ad that diversity plays to organizations based on research that's been done across multiple industries. And then I wanna get into some of the deconstructing, which is what's stopping us now, if we have a desire, if we have hiring managers, if we have a will to have a diverse organization, what can be stopping us from achieving that? And then also how can we break that cycle? So the first polling question I have, um, it'll be easier for the virtual folks. If you're in the room, you will probably, if you're already in the session, you may have to log out and then log back in and it'll populate once Katrina activates the question, but does your organization have a diversity and inclusion program or department? So the options are yes, no, or it's something that you've been talking about and it's pending implementation or rollout. So I'll just give a few moments there. I have no idea what the distribution is gonna be so Katrina can let me know what the, what the winning decision is there. So that's fine and we'll open that and we'll get, the, we'll get to those results here um, in a moment since some people already answered the first question. We will have that when we arrive at it. So the, the next thing I'm gonna go to is a topic that I use. I speak at organizations, I also speak at nonprofits and churches as well on the topic of diversity and kind of breaking homogenous groups. And one thing that I, that I, that I normally say is that colorful homogeneity is the desire to have people who look different 
but think and behave the same. So we can check the box for diversity. So we want diversity, but we just, you know, it's kind of a rainbow coalition of diversity. But when you start interjecting different thought processes, different politics, different identities into the conversation, then it becomes a little bit more complex, right? And I think that's where a lot of organizations start running into issues when they're trying to deconstruct why their organization is so homogenous, that when you start running into differences that relate to diversity that are more than superficial, most organizations weren't ready to handle that, right? Like you, were, you wanted to tackle diversity, but you didn't want to tackle your vacation or your holiday policy when most of your holidays are Judeo-Christian holidays, right? So they're, they're very basic things. And so when we talk about diversity, I think one of the things that's happened is we haven't really been talking about diversity in many industries. We're talking about colorful homogeneity. We want people who look different, but think the same and act the same because that's easier to maintain. Um, in a lot of organizations, there's, there's a concept, um, you all can Google it, I didn't put it in the presentation, but it's called the homogenous unit principle. And the homogenous unit principle was actually used to expand churches across the US for decades. And what the principle said was that when you put people who are together, who are alike together, it's easier, it's more cost effective to have an organization that's homogenous, right? You can have a certain type of style, you can have a certain type of music, you, so you don't have to really adjust or adapt to different cultures, different people, or any kind of variety. So it was actually kind of a push to have homogenous organizations. And it wasn't specifically racial. It was like, we're going to design something that fits in that, that narrates to a certain group and whoever is attracted to that, who's ever attracted to that homogenous unit, that's what we'll stay with. And then you just basically set up another unit. And so every unit may be a little bit different, but you're not actually trying to encourage any kind of fundamental or philosophical differences, right? You basically build a construct and then you accept anyone who comes. And that's when we run into issues when we talk about the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion. So. Defining diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity, a common term, right? So the definition I'm using is used to describe individual differences like life experiences, learning and working styles, personality types, groups, social differences that include race, social economic status, class, gender, sexual orientation, country of origin, ability, intellectual traditions, and perspectives, as well as cultural, political, religious, and other affiliations that can be engaged to achieve excellence, right? So diversity is life experiences, learning, work styles, personality types, race, socioeconomic status, religion. All of those things are attributes of diversity. Race is one, gender is one, but it is a more complex picture when we're talking about diversity. Equity, right, in the, in the workplace, not in investments, in real estate, but equity refers to fair treatment in access, opportunity, and advancement for all individuals. Work in this area includes identifying and working to eliminate barriers to fair treatment for disadvantaged groups from the team level through systemic changes in organizations and industries. Right. So equity, again, is a working to identify and eliminate barriers to fair treatment. Now, inclusion is a term used to describe the active, intentional and ongoing engagement with diversity. 
So active and intentional engagement, that's people, practices, policies, communities in which individuals might connect. So there are a lot of variables to diversity. There's a lot of things, and so when you take all of the variables into diverse, of diversity into account, there's a lot more things you have to think of when it comes to equity and inclusion when you take diversity out of the checkbox level of superficial reality. So um, when we get to that, right, it's okay, so we've talked about diversity, you know, there's been a lot of <laughs> media coverage and conversations about diversity, especially since the events of, of early last year in 2020, but what's the value? Or is it diversity for diversity's sake? Are we trying to be politically correct? Are we trying to, you know, just adjust with the flow or whatever the, the current outrage is in society and we want to respond to it? And the reality is, is that it's always been better to have a diverse organization and it's like a statistical fact. It's not a feeling, it's not emotional, right? People have done research on it and it's proven to be effective. So, and it's all referenced in the, so Deloitte did a study and showed companies with diverse leadership teams, or I'm sorry, this one's from a different organization. Companies with a diverse leadership team are 70% more likely to capture a new market. 70% more likely. Diverse groups are 58% more accurate at solving problems compared to homogenous groups because collective, because collective and individual intelligence increases in diverse groups. So 58% better at problem solving in diverse organizations. Then you also talk about just essentials. So Forbes did, uh, did a study and, and put out kind of a top eight, the essentials to business focus that are impacted um, by diversity, there's greater innovation, there's um, diversity and provides a greater range of skills, right? The business will be boosted, you have happier employees, you have increased productivity, you have a better understanding of your customer, especially when you have a diverse customer base. Um, you have more talent to choose from and you wind up with higher revenues. So with all of that said, on top of that, you have the natural demographics in our society that are shifting. So research shows that by um, that Gen Z is on track to be the nation's most diverse and best educated generation and 48% of them, based on last research, are non-white. So the, the demographic of the country is changing, the demographic of the workforce is changing. So not only is it beneficial, it's inevitable that organizations need to deal with and, and address Diversity. So one of the, then the question is, right, what's stopping us? A lot of people talk about diversity. I, you know, I, my LinkedIn timeline was, was overloaded last year with statements of support of minorities, you know, in different months, whether it's Women's History Month, whether it's, um, whether it's, it's, it's uh, you know, LGBTQ Pride Month, right? You see an abundance of statements from organizations. And so when you look at it publicly, it seems like a lot of companies are really pushing for diversity, right? They're highlighting it, they're making statements, they're making commitments, but a lot of times we don't see it in fruition in a lot of organizations. So you can have it as a statement, but then what can be stopping us internal to the organization? There's a lot of things that can be stopping us, <laughs> and I'm only gonna touch on two specific areas today because I know we're limited in time, and I do wanna give plenty of time for, for questions and feedback. So when we talk about what's stopping us, I'm gonna talk about two major obstacles that I've seen. One of them is our job descriptions and how we choose to recruit, which is something I've been presenting on for the last five years. 
um, across different technology conferences. The second one is something that I've come across that's, that's kind of interesting, but it's our employee referrals and our social networks as well. So on the first topic, when we talk about job descriptions and recruitment, we have a very traditional way in most organizations of recruiting. I believe it was the president of Dell that also he mentioned earlier during his keynote where he was saying, we, we're, we're, you know, we have education requirements, we've got years of experience, we want people to be attuned to specific things in the industry, and a lot of these things can be limiting for a variety of, of reasons, right? I work in the field service industry, a lot of the field service industry are baby boomers who are retiring. So for me to get more people who have experience in an industry that is aging and retiring, like, I, how do you replace that when people are actually exiting the workforce with the skills? So when we're prefacing and we're prioritizing years of experience when we're trying to recruit for diversity. If the industry previously lacked experience, how will you ever get diversity if you're requiring experience? <laughs> so if women have not historically worked in the industry or in the role or in the types of field that you're trying to recruit them for, how would they ever apply if you have a three to five year work experience on your job posting? You're not going to post three to five years experience unless you're a woman. You're not, going to pro you're not going to post two to three years worth of experience unless you're a minority. When honestly, you have hiring managers that will do just that. They will hire people because they know that they haven't had the exposure and the experience. But the problem is, and the reason I have that picture of someone casting a net, it's to use the old parable, right? Cast to the other side of the boat to catch new fish. I did a conference or a seminar earlier this year in April and it was, uh, it was like a quant spring break um, when we were talking about a similar topic. But one of the things you got to realize is that we've, we've been casting a net and that net has been catching a certain kind of fish, right? <laughs> so to use a very basic analogy. So if you want different fish, you either have to change the net or the place where you're casting it. It's one of the two. It's not that difficult, <laughs> right? So you've got a net that's been catching certain fish. You're like, I want some different fish. So either make the holes in the net bigger, make it a different net, right? I'm, 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 a, I'm a, a normal fisherman. I've never used the net before. I don't know the differences in terminology. Um, I was in the Navy. We didn't do much fishing. Um, so, but that's one of the things we have to understand is that, right? Like you've been getting a result based on what you've been putting out. So if you want different candidates, you may have to change your net. If you change the net and the pond or the ocean that you've been playing in isn't reaping you the diversity that you want, then maybe you need to find another pond, right? Like we just, we, we had a new recruiter that started who was kind of like, yeah, indeed, and Monster is the lazy way to recruit, right? Because that's, that's most of our pools now, right? We just take a net that we, we want a certain kind of people and we throw it on LinkedIn or we throw it on Indeed and we're like, let's see what it catches. But the things that we're putting in our job description in our job posting is saying you need to have specific, you know, you got to have AWS. You need to know how to work with Tableau. You need to know how to work in this healthcare equipment. You need to have SAP background for two to five years. You got to know how to use Salesforce CRM, right? I, I said in one of my events, I said, most people's job postings look like Dear John letters. They look like you're trying to win back somebody who already worked at your company and quit but then you're trying to bring them back at a lower salary, 
right? Because it was, and I, and I did one presentation where I actually showed someone's job description. I didn't know that they were going to be at the conference, um, but I showed a job description and it was an entry level field service position, but it required like five years of experience on very specific equipment. It required like two years of previous training. And I'm like, it sounds like you're trying to hire a former senior tech as an entry level technician. But people who you would want to hire and, and, you know, one of my directors of field services here, when we talk to our customer care managers and we talk to our supervisors, Right, they would hire the guy from Best Buy who works at the Geek Squad installing car stereos. They would hire him in a heartbeat, but none of them would have ever applied for our positions based on the way that our job descriptions and our job postings were made years ago. So it's taken a while for us to go through that process looking at job descriptions, but that's one of our barriers. If you have a homogenous organization now, that's because the net that you have been throwing has been catching a certain type of fish. If you want more diverse people, you have to pay attention to how you're catching your current talent, right? And one of these is how do we recruit? What do our job descriptions and our job postings say, right? Are they over specific on technology that you've got to know how to work on this type of compressor or this specific elevator or this specific user interface or software code? Some of it from a, you know, if you're a developer and you got, you're using Python versus Linux, yes, you want them to be able to understand it. but for a lot of the entry level technical positions, a lot of us are having an issue filling in technical support, customer service. We're very specific in our job descriptions and our job postings to the point to where we're eliminating a lot of the candidates that our hiring managers would be willing to bring in, train up and give an opportunity. So what we wind up doing is we keep, we keep exchanging and transferring, and this is a part of the great resignation as well, we just keep transferring our, our hired, our existing employees, right? So they just keep going from company to company, competitor to competitor, and we just keep paying more for the same talent, but it's gonna get to the point to where that's not sustainable, <laughs> right? Because one, there aren't enough people to sustain, to, uh, to sustain the growing dynamic of the industry in itself, and then you also have people who are leaving because they're retiring, right? So I, we've had people that come to our organization because we will pay them more money and they're like, I've got three more years and I'm retiring. So they're literally just coming to my organization because the percentage that we match of their salary is going to help them max out their 401k. But like, I can't keep doing that and having people that come in for three years and that are transitioning but are just looking and shopping for the organization that'll pay them the most money, right? We have to go from, from hunting to kind of more farming talent and being specific around the kind of people that we want to recruit. So, and I, and I know you probably have questions in your mind, so just if you have them, hold on to them. I don't have a lot of content to go through here. Um, and I think most of you already answered the next polling question, which is according to CNBC poll, what percentage of jobs are never published publicly? And, doo -doo 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 -doo. oh, it's a, so it's a tie between 38% and 82%. So the answer is actually 70%. So right in the middle. So um, networking, so when we talk about employee referrals and social networks to move on to the second topic, um, so CNBC and HubSpot, right? HubSpot found that 85% of jobs are filled through networking and CNBC found that 70% of jobs are never published publicly. Then if you look at the second point on LinkedIn, 70% of professionals hired in 2016 had a connection at that company 
and 80% of professionals consider networking vital to career access. So why are employee referrals and social networks important when we talk about diversity? I'm gonna use a very old quote from Martin Luther King, who um, on, a, on a news special said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. We still live in a relatively homogenous community, country, right? And so some people live in more metropolitan areas, but just to give a visualization so people don't think I'm exaggerating, this is the demographic <laughs> map of the United States. So the dark purple areas that you see are areas that are significantly less diverse, which means 80% or greater of the population in the area that's purple is homogenous. It is the same racial demographic. So you can look at certain, you know, you look at California, you look at some places in Texas, but if you look at the vast majority of the country, a large swath of the land in America is not that diverse. And so when we talk about diversity, that's why it's important that we define it as something greater than just race. I had somebody that reached out to me for some consulting on the topic and where he was stationed, his business was in a remote area of Michigan that was like 87% white. And he was like, why don't we have any more diverse candidates? I'm like, you don't have more diverse, you don't have a racial diversity in your area, but do you have people who think differently? Do you have people who have different political backgrounds, different education backgrounds, or are you continually hiring the friends of the people who are employed there, which is minimizing your diversity outside of racial? Because some areas you're not gonna be able to get racial diversity. And if you did, it would be, it would be culturally awkward, right? Like if we just, we just pulled an employee in you know, it's almost like integration, like busing employees into your office because you're in an area that's not diverse. But diversity isn't just about race, right? There are other ways to introduce diversity that can improve problem solving, that can give you a competitive advantage, um, that can give you a greater understanding of your customer base, um, that where you can operate within the diversity that's available within a given, within a given community or a given geography. Right, so we talked about job descriptions and referrals briefly. We talked about like employee networks and how the, the impact of, um, of, of that dynamic around, especially when you talk about referring, right? So all employers, and like I said, a lot of people get hired through networking. Well, most of us, if we're honest, we don't have very diverse social groups. And even if our, our, if our social groups are racially diverse, we normally hang around people who agree with or kind of think like us. Most of us don't intentionally spend most of our free time around people we disagree with, right? So even when you're not talking, and again, getting outside of the specific scope of just, but do you want people who think differently? Do you want people who have different, um, different beliefs and different perspectives in the way that they see the world, the way that they would see a problem? Um, because just referring people you know, I don't have many friends who are significantly different than me when it comes to ideology, even though I have friends of different religious backgrounds and, and all this other stuff, we're pretty similar in some ways, right? So we encourage a lot of networking and we do a lot of hiring through networking, but we have to be, in, we have to be mindful of the fact that we're not perpetuating a problem that we publicly say we're trying to correct, right? So when we talk about breaking the cycle, there's, there's a few things that can be done that are kind of very tangible and easy. So one, review your job postings, 
right? Remove non-essential requirements. What I told somebody, look at one of your best new employees and what their background was. I can almost guarantee you that person does not meet like your written job requirements, <laughs> right? Your star that's coming in that's like, when you go back and look at them, you're like, we're not even sure why we hired this person, but we did, and they're doing a fantastic job. But what we never do is go back and look at our job description and say like, why doesn't this person meet the requirements? Because they're doing the job very well. So we've got to take that evaluation and we've got to look at the job postings. We've got to remove non-essential stuff. In, um, and like, I'd like the gentleman from Dell said this morning, we've got to focus on skills in lieu of experience. What is someone capable of doing? What is someone capable of learning? Especially from a service perspective. We hired somebody to do a very technical job who had just graduated from technical school and her previous job was at Chick-fil-A. I'm like, hire her immediately. Right. Like I would I would take people right out of Chick-fil-A's customer service school because they have amazing customer service. So if you have the technique, you have the, uh, the aptitude and the ability to learn something technical. The hardest thing is the soft skills and dealing with frustrated customers. So if you can maintain a smile and say my pleasure for eight hours a day at Chick-fil-A, I'm sure you can deal with some of our customers that we have to deal with with a down um, with a down system in a healthcare facility because the customer service aspect of it is one of the hardest things to train, especially in a remote deployed organization like field service. So focusing on skills in lieu of experience and focusing on skills that they can demonstrate in lieu of formal education. You've got a certification, but your certification is on an IT security platform that is no longer valid because now everybody uses artificial intelligence antivirus. So does that really tell me anything? But what are things that they can demonstrate? What can I put in your hand? What can I give you to do that shows me that you've got the ability to learn to do what I need you to do as an organization? And so adjusting those job descriptions you see in parentheses there, that's changing the net. So, right, so you've got a possibility that you could go fishing in the same pond that you've been fishing in. You can use Indeed, you can use your recruiters, you can use your website whatever you've been using, and you could just be able to change the net and you'll get a more diverse group of candidates that give your hiring managers and people in, um, in HR an opportunity to give you a more diverse group of candidates to, um, to, to interview and potentially hire. So that's the net aspect of it. Then you've got the water, right? Where have we been doing the recruitment? So one, uh, one thing that we've had to do as an organization is we require diversity in our candidates. And, when, and sometimes diversity is just numbers, <laughs> right? Like I know it's a hard labor market, but like a lot of times we're stuck with one candidate in a position that we need to fill that's critical and we're kind of like, eh, okay. Like just take that one candidate. It may be more difficult, it may be more painful in the interim, but if we're gonna say we wanna diversify and expand how we're, how we're interviewing candidates, then make sure we have two or three people who are being interviewed for every position. Make sure we're looking at the resumes and I'm not just interviewing three candidates from my competition, right? Let's, let's look and make sure that we're actually getting diversity in the, in the recruitment in the interviewing phase, which gives your organization an opportunity to hire diverse candidates, right? Um, so that's why I talk about exploring new oceans. Maybe you need to try a different source for recruitment. Um, maybe you need to engage your hiring managers earlier in the process. One thing that we noticed in our grading process, there was a difference in grading between my managers who know the technology, because everyone in my, in my management team, including me, used to be a service technician. So we know how to do the job. So we look at a resume and we're like, this person is an A. 
Our HR department would look at the same resume and be like, that person is a D. So there was a disconnect. So we were, we were like, okay, like when we went and looked at the resumes, the people we pulled out to be screened were different than what HR was pulling out to be screened because HR was looking at our job requirements. HR was saying, this person has more experience, they're ex-military, which everybody in my leadership team, except for my, <laughs> my manager in Canada is ex-military. Most of my direct reports are actually ex-Navy, not, not on purpose, it just happened. Uh, <laughs> but that's one thing, so people were kind of getting favored, honestly, because they looked more like us. So people were getting graded an A if they were ex-military. And I'm like, I don't, like, I have no problem with hiring ex-military, but I would also like to hire this person that used to work at Chick-fil-A and just graduated from technical school. Because people who join the military, what you demonstrate by joining the military is that you're trainable, right? That's why you take an ASVAB, it's your aptitude. You have the aptitude to be trained and to learn something that you did not know. I have a degree in information technology. I went into the Navy to do nuclear engineering and operate a power plant. Those are not the same things, right? But I had an aptitude that I was able to learn towards and that provided us, and that provided a solution. So, right, so pulling those managers in earlier in that process gives you that advantage because what it starts to do is you start, the HR department kind of starts to learn because they've been screening, and this is where I have to defend the HR department because everyone likes to pick on HR. You're rewarding the behavior you don't want if you keep hiring candidates that you complain about. Right, so we're like, I don't get any diverse candidates. I don't see any women for these positions. I don't see any minorities for these positions. But we keep hiring the people that you give us, right? Their job is to get us candidates that we hire. So if they present us candidates and we hire them, then they are doing their job. If we're not hiring the kind of candidates that we want, then we're not doing ours, right, as the hiring manager. So sometimes you gotta be at a stalemate and say, I know that's the only candidate you have, but I need you to get some more people in front of me because I want to make sure that we're providing opportunities. Or I understand that you think this person is an A because it matches the profile of some people that we wanted to hire, but I also want to interview this person that you ranked as a C and let's let the hiring manager decide, right? Let's let the person that has the, the industry knowledge, the person that has to deal with them, that has to train them, <laughs> that has to discipline them, let them weigh in on that decision. And what we found is that we were hiring people who were probably more, more commonly being ranked as a C versus the A. And Cs were staying longer, performing better, getting trained faster. And it was because that, you know, there was something that those managers saw that they had an aptitude, they had a skill and they had a behavior that we could bring into the organization to be successful. And a lot of this is based on, and when I talk about the A and the C, right, like we've got to fix the algorithms, right? Like a lot of us have automated processes now that kind of screen our resumes and read for words and keywords and look for technical um, terminology and resumes and experience and education. And that's what's kind of weeding people out of the screening process. So sometimes we have to go in and the screening, you know, the automation may have picked out 10 resumes, but I tell my managers, go back and look at all of them. So we'll go back and look through 100 resumes and it's screened out 10, but we found 30. So in some of that, it's retraining that. So then you go in, you put the grades in, and then you kind of have to retrain that. Because again, we've been conditioning our systems, our HR department, our recruitment to provide something where I think a lot of people in the industries are like, we want to see diversity, but we're not getting it. But it's because we're not changing the net or we're not changing the water. Um,
when it comes to when we're talking about like uh, employee networks and referrals, right? I talked about this a little bit already, but you want to incentivize diversity in referrals, right? Like encourage your um, encourage your minorities, um, your minority employees to submit some. And if they're not submitting referrals, ask them why. Because it is true that you could have somebody who's a minority in your organization that would not recommend another minority because of your organization. So you could have a culture that they were like, you know what, I can deal with this because of my tolerance, because of my patience, but I wouldn't recommend someone else to go through this, right? So if you do have a referral program and you notice there's a certain demographic of people that never seem to refer someone, then you probably need to check and ask them why. Because it may be an indication that you have a culture, like I said earlier, you have a culture that you think is inclusive. You have a culture that you think is diverse and is equitable, but people aren't willing to test it <laughs> on your behalf. Like they don't want to have a ruined friendship because I recommended somebody to work here, but I know one of my colleagues is kind of sexist. And so she might get a little bit more offended by that comment than I would, right? Like somebody might make a joke that they find to be inappropriate. So you're kind of guarded around how you bring people in, especially if there's things that you've experienced directly. Um, when it comes to, to, to social networks, right? Like make sure that we're engaging in diverse professional associations. You know, TSIA had reached out to me about black student initiatives and trying to get more networking and connecting into like historically black colleges so they can have internships as well and work with some companies to introduce that network um, as people transition out of, out of universities. Um, and, I, and I wrote that there. And also doing community outreach, again, around the water. Like, who are you reaching out to? Who are you connecting with uh, to try to resolve the issues or the perceived issues you think you have as an organization with diversity? So that is all the content. And I know I ran through it relatively quickly. Um, there are a lot of presentations that I've done on behavioral skills, um, uh, skills assessments, tools that you can use as well. Um, and any, anybody who wants to see them or, or, or wants to discuss those further, you can always shoot me an email as well. But I did want to leave some time at the end for some questions or feedback, either from the virtual group or from anyone in the room. Yes, we do have one question. It's, what's the biggest barrier keeping companies from making progress in the DEI? What do you think they should do about that? Hmm. The Dell president said it earlier, it's the human problem, <laughs> right? I think it's a human problem. I don't, I don't think it's a process problem. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand what they mean when they're saying diversity. I think it's too arbitrary. It's too abstract of a concept at a lot of companies because I've, I've spoken at other events and I'll ask somebody, um, does your organization define diversity? So there are large organizations that have a diversity department. They have a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the organization has no definition of diversity. So people don't really know what you're trying to achieve, right? So I think it's, I think it's abstract, and people don't have the crucial, tough conversations to say, what do we mean by diversity, and what are we actually trying to achieve? So I think a lot of people say diversity when what they actually mean is colorful homogeneity. We want a lot of people who look different so that if we're audited, so that from a public perspective, we look like a rainbow coalition of people working towards a problem. 
but they're not getting down into, into some of the more, um, the, the more kind of granular aspects of diversity and making sure that people feel comfortable, that they feel included, and that you're deconstructing anything within your organization that could make people feel isolated who are different, right? Because the thing about, right, they're individual differences. They're not deficiencies, they are differences. So we should be able to reasonably and you know, intelligently engage with, with differences in a corporate culture. Yes. The microphone is coming to you. So instead of um, recruiting for specific experience, um, one thing that I've been having my leaders do and my team is recruit for transferable skills, right? So like finishing play. But one thing that I've noticed is it can take for a technical role, if they've got the, those transferable skills and that aptitude for learning, it can take longer to ramp up that new employee in productivity. And so that costs more money because you know all of a sudden it's four months instead of two months of ramp period before I get into productivity. So have you come across that? What have you done to kind of you know, winning that battle ahead of time and in terms of like engaging a, you know, a large budget and timeline and such, I mean, how, how, how do you face something like that? Yeah, so, so we have faced that um, several years ago just because of the, the evolution of our technology and the fact that we have always kind of hired non-traditional people because we, we hire a lot of people out of the military. Um, We're very, very intentional about the way that we train technically. So the one thing that we found is that you have to invest a lot and a lot of companies have gotten spoiled that we don't have to invest a lot in our training because we just keep hiring people from our, from our competition or people who are familiar with systems that we use that a lot of our onboarding and our technical training is assuming like a certain base level of knowledge where it's not really hard to go to foundational stuff and build from there. So I think one, it's you know if you invest in the training, then that, that two versus four month can probably wind up around three. And depending on the person's aptitude, because it'll vary, somebody will get themselves up to speed in three or four weeks and somebody will get themselves up to speed in three or four months, just depending on individual, um, individual um, traction. But it's definitely a, a component of how well your training system is built and how foundational some of your training is. There's a lot of assumptions in our training um, and again, like our, my train, the training and development manager that's in our organization was ex-military. So he also builds those things out from like a foundational building block perspective. So I'm going to start you at zero and then try to build you forward. Some people can skip from zero to three because they already know, like we'll hire people from our customers. So we work in healthcare technology. We'll hire a facilities engineer from a hospital. I don't need to teach you about hospital culture. I don't even need to teach you the basics of our system. You've already worked on it in a hospital. So you come in, you get certified quickly in those earlier things, and then you jump into the more complex stuff, maybe the software side, the networking, some of the proprietary stuff that we deal with. Um, but it's the investment in the, in, the, in the technical training. One thing that I'll say is something that we don't typically measure is the time we spend untraining people. And the one thing, so like when you hire people from within your industry, so like we work in healthcare, but we're not an FDA regulated product. 
So if I hire somebody from a company that's used to dealing with an FDA regulated product, there's a lot of things that they expect us to be doing around sealing and recalls and data that we don't do as an organization. So like when they come in, it's like a shock that there's since we're like a utility and not a and not a, cust- a patient touching piece of equipment like an EKG or, or, or a blood pressure monitor, then they're kind of shocked, right? When you bring somebody from the nuclear power industry or from semiconductors, there, there's a lot of things that we kind of, you have to untrain people that are not technical, that are the process side of the business, that you spend more time on with candidates that came from a different company that's similar but may have different technology. So I think you, the trade-off that you kind of get if you get the foundational training down is that you don't have to do as much untraining, but then you can also have a quicker, more standardized process for getting people up to speed. And then your, your, your talent keeps evolving, right? Like we just, my, my leadership team had a meeting a couple of weeks ago and we're changing our training program again, where we're using the same certification, but now we're gonna do more intense, like hands-on training in a very structured way and use a group of, um, of our advanced and senior technicians to help work people through that because that's the, that's the kind of, we pilot it with the person that we hire from Chick-fil-A. And it worked really, really well. So we're like, we're gonna duplicate this and we're gonna do this with every new person that we hire moving forward and provide that, that same level of, of support because we took, that, you know, we took that chance to hire somebody that wasn't a, even, not even a traditional candidate for us when we've been doing skills-based recruitment, excuse me, for the last five years. Any other questions online or in the room? Yeah, and that's, that's a, a very good question and, and a statement um, because I agree. And so with, within our organization, we've achieved a significant increase in the level of diversity, right? So from, from leadership and management, um, we still have a challenge hiring females in field service from an industry perspective because that's just, <laughs> right, our office, we have, more, we have more women that work in our office positions that don't require the travel. Um, and we've had some women have come in our field service organization and transition laterally into other, um, other departments for, for reasons, a lot of them just predicated on travel. And so I think it is, it's up to every individual leader, right? What I see is I see companies that make very high level statements and they have an understanding, but your CEO does not hire employees. They hire executives. So one, if you've, got to, if you've got to represent what you're saying. So if you're saying you want a diverse organization, but all of your executives are white males or white females, that's not diversity, right? Um, I, I was talking to, my, talking to my friend and my employee. Um, I am the only black speaker at TSIA, male or female. I, I scrolled through the list. I'm the, I'm the only one. So and, and there are very few black males at TSIA, right? There, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few black, male, black executives in field service because it's historically been a, a white male dominated um, you know, industry. So like you see it everywhere, but I see organizations that are genuinely, into, you know, genuinely want to see a difference. But when you start trickling that down to departments, I think you lose it in translation at a department. Because from an executive level, right, we're looking at macro dynamics. So we're looking at diversity within our organization. And you can have one organization that's all women, and it could be mixed with white women and you know, Asian women. And then you have one organization that's all men, and there are no women, there's no diversity, it's a homogenous group. But when, you, when you're the CEO and you're looking at your demographics, right, like I've got veterans, I've got different representative groups, but when you get down into departments, 
you can have departments that are completely homogenous, right? That there, there's next to no diversity in those departments, and those departments have someone who's doing the hiring. So I think the challenge is, regardless of what you set as an organization, and I want to be clear, everything that I'm speaking about is what I do in my organization, right? Like, I took responsibility and control of my organization. I will not hire people that HR presents to us unless we feel like we have a diverse group of candidates. I get to control who I hire. I've got to deal with the pain and the frustration of needing to wait longer to get candidates, but it's ultimately our responsibility within my team. I can't complain about a problem that I'm perpetuating. So I think a lot of it is as leaders, we have to stand up. And like you said, if you're like, look, I need different representation on my team and I'm going to have it. I think every organization would be like, okay, like what do we need to do? But I think there's a lot of conversation at the top but there isn't a lot of process change and reflection through the organization. So we're not maliciously doing it, but we're continuing to use the same net. We're continuing to use the same water. And we're like, we're talking about diversity. We tweet about it. We put it on LinkedIn, but you haven't changed anything fundamentally on how you're selecting candidates. So I think it's responsibility of the people who are in management down to the hiring managers, right? That might be a significant pay grade down from you, but they need to know that I'm behind you if you want to diversify your organization and then I'll stand with you to make sure that we meet those requirements and that we have a diverse organization so we can better represent, better represent the population, right? <laughs> Got a lot of friends in California that work in Silicon Valley and most of them are the diversity, right? They, they are the, the one holdout even if they're working remotely. So that's what I would say, but I think the statements don't get carried down into action and embodied in the way that we're doing things, right? We make a lot of PR statements, and I think a lot of them are well-intended. I'm not even saying people are doing it maliciously, but you're not going back and checking at a micro level how diversity is playing out within the organization. You're looking at what you get audited for at a macro level, and you can have one department. Your warehouse, right, like everyone's shipping department, is normally minorities, like most companies can meet the minority requirement just because they have a large shipping department, but everyone in your offices is not a minority, right? Or, or not in a particular group. So you've, we've got to look at it in, in micro and empower the managers to, to, hold them, to hold the company to what they say, right? Hold, if you say we're going to be diverse, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. And then we're, you're going to have to work with me to get through that process. So, but thank you for that statement. And I know we're over time, so we're going to, Wrap it up, but thank you. And back to Katrina. <laughs>